Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Bowman, the host of Side Door, a podcast with candid conversations with world-class entrepreneurs. Successful early employee is someone who I'd say will be very adventurous, very versatile, and most important, very comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. In tech, the old adage is, if the company is a rocket ship, don't ask questions, just get on. You'll find your seat. Starting a company is easy. Getting a product market fit and traction is much harder. So if you can find a company that's growing rapidly and you get offered a job, accept it. You'll figure out your role. In season one of Side Door, I interviewed all founders. I love founder stories because they're so different. Their risk appetite is so admirable, but founders are not alone in this journey. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Founders need a strong team. What that team will look like will change over time. So I wanted to start season two by talking to key employees at fast-growing startups and understanding what building a startup is like from their perspective and how it differs from a founder and how it's similar. Ruang Guru is one of the fastest-growing startups in Indonesia. While Gojek and Tokopedia may get a lot of the attention, Ruang Guru raised over $150 million a little more than a year ago, and they have hundreds of employees. Today's guest is Richie Gonawan, VP of Ops, Product, and Content at Ruanguru. While he didn't join the company in the early stages, he joined at a really critical time for many startups, the scaling stage. When a company scales, they're unofficially transitioning from a startup that's trying to figure things out to a sustainable company with predictable processes. I've started companies and I've worked at early stage startups with less than five people. I currently work at a global company with global clients. So as the meme goes, I know how it started and how it's currently going, but I've never experienced the transition in between. That's what I discussed with Richie, how he has helped scaling Ruanguru and what it looks like from the inside. Hi, Richie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, Jesse. Uh, and so to introduce you, you are the VP of Business Ops Product and Content at Ruanguru. Is that correct? Spot on. Yeah. So you wear a lot of different hats. Uh, so before we get into what is Ruanguru, what do you do? Um, can we start by you know telling everyone what your background is and uh, where did you work before? Sure. Sure. So... Um... As of, as of now, I've worked um, for slightly more than 10 years. In the 10 years, um, I actually started my career in the corporate uh, organization. I actually, uh, my first job was to be in a marketing uh, function in Unilever, uh, one of the biggest FMCG majors globally. Yeah, I was based in Singapore basically responsible for brand growth regionally in Southeast Asia. After that, I actually moved to management consulting to BCG, Boston Consulting Group, basically doing a variety of projects across industries, across different topics. Yep. After BCG, I moved over to e-commerce. I joined Lazada Indonesia. Uh, to be the SVP for the FMCG category, basically responsible for the PNL of the entire FMCG-related products uh, on Lazada for Indonesia. 
after Lazada, then I joined Ruang Guru uh, through Blue Startup, in my opinion, and that's where I am right now. Yeah, so you have a very you know unique background. I think from a lot of the guests that we've had, uh, most of them uh, have spent a lot of time in startups. Even though a lot of the guests have had uh, Lazada on their resume, um, but you know, going from FMCG to management consulting, I think is uh, rather unique. So, what kind of drew you to that that startup side uh, and taking that leap? So, I joined Wrong Guru uh, like sometime after. Uh, series b funding and it was about around a thousand employees strong and uh, that was one and a half years ago and today we are almost four thousand strong including international operations in thailand and vietnam now what actually drew me to join wrong guru given my uh, background i will look at it from three factors actually the first one, I think it's quite typical for a lot of people attracted to join a high growth startup. And that is, there is a significant opportunity to solve a major problem. And for Ruang Guru, that major problem is the education sector in Indonesia, a sector that has been ignored for a long time. And as the digital economy progresses, uh, it was not really the first top of mind sectors that most entrepreneurs uh, want to fix or improve first. Right? So I see that there is still a substantial opportunity to uh, contribute. And I know that any contribution that I may have made or am making, there will be a long-term positive impact to the Indonesian society at large. Factor number two is actually at such an early stage. To me, it also means that Ranguru represents a big canvas uh, for me as a, someone with experience in bigger organizations to help shape the destiny of a homegrown company. So I see myself as helping the founders scale their company, helping them anticipate what is really needed to not only survive, but thrive as the company grows. And the third thing definitely very important for me was the founders themselves are visionary and inspiring and people I can really continue to learn so much from. So I think these three factors was really the, the three drawing uh, points for me to join Ranguru. Yeah. So, you know, there's a different patriotic um, element to this uh, with Ruanguru being one of the, you know, big companies within Indonesia uh, from the startup uh, perspective. Uh, and then, yeah, you have that, that management experience that would allow you to come in and bring some structure. So when I introduced you, I, you know, your job title has like three major functions. Uh, so can you kind of describe what your primary uh, role and responsibilities are? Yes. Um, as as most people can attest to, uh, sometimes when you look at job titles uh, for people in the startup environment, can be quite uh, uh, misleading because typically everyone from the all the way to the bottom, all the way to the top, have to be quite versatile. And I'll touch upon that later if I can share with you. But my primary responsibilities at Ranguru number one is 
making sure that we constantly improve the PNL performance of all our products in the group company. So we have a lot of products, including B2C and B2B uh, products, including online as well as offline businesses, as well as businesses that target very different uh, customer segments. So as the VP of Business and Operations, uh, my first and foremost responsibility is to make sure that all the profit and loss performance of each of these product is continually being enhanced, right? Uh, top line growth, bottom line growth, as well as continuously enhancing the unit economics of, for each of these product. Now, the second responsibility is really translating this, this any strategy, which is usually collectively crafted at the management level. But for me to lead my teams, to translate this strategy and uh, to, to become effective and efficient execution. And the third one, which is equally important, is also to help the founders build the right organization to be fit for purpose, uh, agile, resilient, and future ready. So these three encompasses um, my responsibilities. All right, you, you operationalize a lot of uh, what you guys are doing on the ground. Uh, and so, you know, Ruanguru is this educational startup, but you had mentioned that you guys have uh, five different uh, products. Uh, so can you just quickly, uh, you know, to describe what those, those different uh, products are? Sure. Actually, it's more than five, but uh, broadly speaking, we, the way we look at products, uh, we start with the customer first. And there are three kinds. Uh, the first is actually what we call the K to 12 segment. Basically, any uh, students currently between the grade one to grade 12 in a formal education. Yep, that's the K to 12 uh, segment. We have different products for different occasions for, that for those customers. We also have another segment called lifelong learning. Uh, basically targeting anyone who is 18 years old and above. Uh, uh, what can we offer to help them uh, upskill and reskill continuously in life? And then the third kind is B2B for the corporate sector. We actually support companies uh, do uh, training in a digital manner for their employees. So uh, I think these are the three broad categories of who we serve. And then below that, there can be many different variations of the product and services that we offer. So we don't have to get in, into every single product, but can you kind of just give me an example of, um, you know, from your K to 12 education, what the, you know, sub products might look like? Sure. Um, I think the K to 12 is the one that actually uh, gave uh, Ronguru its first uh, inflection point yeah, in his history. Uh, one of the main product is called Ruang Belajar, which translates to English, it means study room. So it's basically a, subscri a subscription-based package where uh, we, we like to call it like the Netflix of education. Uh, you pay, a student pay a very affordable uh, fee for between six months to 12 months, and then they can have access to over 20,000 learning videos for all the subjects that they need to tackle in school for the different curriculum currently being active in Indonesia. 
uh, as well as many more learning materials beyond just the videos. We have assessments, quizzes, gamifications, um, and things like that. That's the main, main product which is currently serving, as of this year, 17 million students in Indonesia. One major theme from Season 1 was that recruiting is the lifeblood of startups. Getting the right people at the right time to join your company is critical to growth. Earlier on, typically you want generalists, while as you grow, you need specialists. As someone who joined Ruanguru as it was a little more mature, I wanted to get Richie's perspective on how to assess startup jobs, the differences between founders and employees, and the challenges of hiring and retaining talent. You are the first non-founder that we've had on the podcast. Uh, so the role of someone uh, like you is quite different than um, the founder or even, you know, one of those first five, 10 early employees. Um, so I guess from your experience, your perspective, um, what is that major difference between the founder, the early employee, and then <clears throat> someone who is coming in uh, as the business is starting to scale? Yeah, that, that's a great question because to be honest, when I first joined, um, yes, I had read up about this uh, from many other companies globally talking about founders, uh, early employees, scalers, but you know, it's been an adventure. I had to also navigate uh, together with the founders uh, because it was also something new for them. But I think at the, at the, at the, at the basic level, right? Um, I mean, uh, it's, it's quite hard to put people exactly to buckets, but uh, I think uh, over time, it's, it's getting clearer to me um, what are the different uh, traits uh, between successful founders, successful early employees, and successful scalers, or so-called scalers, right? Um, for me, if I start with the successful founder, First and foremost, he or she is typically someone who is really, a, I would say, a courageous dreamer, yep. um, who is persistent and really great at storytelling. Uh, it's all the stories, all the legends. Uh, I think it's really true. I've seen it for myself that on a day-to-day -day basis, a founder has to continuously overcome a lot of doubt, yep. doubt from others. Uh, whether within the company as outside the company. So that's why I say a typically successful founder will be someone who's a courageous dreamer. He or she dreams about the idea, the vision, but have the courage to keep going on even when others say it may not work, it is a stupid idea, it, it, it will fail and so on. Right? That also means a, a successful founder has to be ready to be to receive a lot of rejections, resistance from many, many directions. And hence, I say a typical founder that's successful is also someone who's very persistent. And when I say great at storytelling, he or she have to sell the dream. And that's what it's all about, right? The dream of the startup to do something meaningful, significant, or legendary, and uh, you know, uh, bring the people together with him or her. That is for the founder. Now, uh, for early employee, uh, I think I've, I've had the privilege within Rongru to also uh, get acquainted with uh, early employees that have been with them since the very beginning. And mm -hmm. I've seen that 
the early, successful early employees, someone who I say will be very adventurous, very versatile, and most important, very comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, I've, I keep hearing stories about they join as a certain in a certain function, but end up doing two, three, four, or even five different hats as they work with the founders to build the initial traction. And this, this so-called early employees that actually stayed on till today, uh, by definition, they also enjoy the fact that, for example, their job descriptions or job scopes changes very rapidly. Right? There's never really a fixed job description or job scope. So that's for early employee. Now, uh, you are right. For me, I see myself as helping a founder as a scaler joining the company not that early in the, in, the, in the lifetime of the startup. And I think what I also uh, am learning along the way and learning from so many others, a successful scaler is someone who has the experience managing many, many different things or topics on a bigger scale than the startup itself. It can be bigger business size, bigger teams, bigger organization setup, bigger budget, bigger market, bigger competition, and so on. And he or she has to, able, has to be able to leverage on this learnings, previous experience to help prepare the startup to be ready as the organization and the business expands. So for me, um, that's uh, probably the main differences between founder, early employee, and scaler. So based on your, you know, I would say pretty accurate descriptions, um, the, the scalar position, right? So you are saying that you think it's best that some, when a company hits that inflection point that they're, they're growing, you know, exponentially, they should bring in people or, or, you know, a person who is coming from a much larger organization who has that experience at that scale already. Um, and that's the best way or not necessarily the best way, but that's a, uh, an effective way uh, to, to help the, those new growing um, problems that uh, startups have? Yeah, I, I actually think so. I think that's the main value. Otherwise, uh, what's the point of getting in so-called the scaler? Because the scaler is, I would say, in a way, reverse engineering the, the, the positive learnings, the best practices. Uh, from the bigger companies, whether it's in the same sector or in the same country. And of course, not just copy-pasting, but definitely have, have to do a lot of adapting, right? But at least you know your, your end game. You want to reach a certain stage uh, where the company reaches. Uh, let, me, let me, if I can share a, a, a concrete example. Uh, when I joined Ranguru, there was no performance management uh, system or process for the employees at all. Everyone just keep doing, doing, executing, right? And celebrating the wins and learning from the failures and so on. But a lot of the people who join the organization over time, uh, they are also looking to build their career, right? And when you talk about building your career, you will want to know where you're standing. You want to get your feedback from your boss. You want to know how you rate versus the rest. Uh, you want to know how do you improve to be excellent and outstanding and so on. All of these processes needs to be systematically arranged, right? And of course, huge organizations have had that for many, many years, uh, implementing, refining them uh, across thousands of employees. So that's, that's 
just one of the thousands of examples I can think of that really can benefit a startup because now that Ruang Guru, as I shared earlier, has grown from a thousand per people when I first joined to almost 4,000 now, you simply cannot let the 4,000 be uh, doing things without proper coordination, direction, or prioritization. So uh, I think that's the main value that any scaler should bring uh, on top of maybe other attributes. That, you know, as someone who, my experience is more from the, the founder early employee uh, perspective, uh, that makes a lot of sense, especially now that I'm working at a larger corporation, right? You know, companies at some point need to have that, you know, I don't want to say corporate structure, but it needs, it needs structure in order for it to grow at a repeated, in a repeated process. Um, so I guess you were talking about employee growth as part, you know, part of the reasons why you need to, to have these types of processes in place. You went through this process of assessing uh, Ruanguru as a place for you to work, right? And so, and now you're creating these operations to not only help uh, the current employees with their career trajectory, but you are also, you know, using that as a way to recruit new talent. So I guess how should, or how, you know, how should people who are interested, right? Maybe they don't have the, the, the traits or the risk appetite for early stage, but they want to get on that, that rocket ship as it's, it's taking off. Um, how should they assess startup positions versus, you know, a similar job at a larger corporation? Yeah, that's, that's always tricky, actually. Um, I, have, I have interviewed so many people with this constant dilemma. <laughs> uh, but I've, I've, I've begun to discern some patterns yeah, for those that end up uh, after, long after they join uh, Ruang Guru and end up being happy and thriving and actually performing, right? Um, and I've also known people who have actually rejected the offer to join Ruang Guru and actually ended up in a big corporate uh, job and also end up thriving and being happy about it. So again, uh, they, uh, I want to dispel the myth that uh, joining startups is the end all be all or the coolest thing for everyone. It really is on a, uh, on a person to person basis. Now for me, uh, if I can share, I think anybody that is assessing a startup position uh, need to look at, I would say four to five things. And the first thing will be um, do you uh, understand and actually believe in the problem to be solved by this startup, right? Uh, all the great startups that have gained traction and scale up successfully and ended up being unicorns, decacorns, typically they are always solving a major problem that they seek to disrupt or make it better and innovate and so on. Now, anybody should start with that first because they shouldn't join because it's cool and it's big and it's growing and it's a big market, more like, do you even understand and believe what, what you're trying to solve? Now, for us, for example, in Ruanguru, the first thing that we want to solve is there is a lack of standardized access to quality education, right? Because uh, a lot of things about education is rightly so, depends on teachers. But what happens if I'm a student in a region, Indonesia, uh, um, learning from a teacher that has also been taught by bad teachers before, right? So you, you can expect to get poorer quality pedagogy. Now, 
we can always say we want to enhance and improve all the teachers, but it will take a very long time, right? Because it's a generational thing. So we believe if we bring the best teachers, produce the content, record it, and share the access at scale in a very affordable way, then at least for this generation, we can help people, uh, especially those outside the big cities without access to the top teachers, who have at least a fighting chance. So that's our problem to be solved. And for anyone that joined Ronguru need to understand this and need to believe in this. If they believe that there's a better way, then they can either choose to you know, join us and really propose that and fight for the idea or join another startup or don't join a startup at all. For me, that's very important. We always, I always look at the candidate in that sense. And I think for the candidate to have the belief, uh, it's important so that once they join, you know, they really uh, can endure all the not so positive things in a startup. Yeah, the amount of stress, the amount of uncertainty. Now that's the first one. Uh, second one, I think it's also important to, when you, especially when you, you mentioned comparing to a corporate job, is to have the confidence in the business model. Right? We have heard all these stories where uh, you know, startups blitz scaling their way, burning cash, and during crisis like now and during COVID, actually have to shut down or lay off a lot of people. Uh, I think it's also wise for anyone when you're assessing startup position to know that you're joining uh, a startup uh, who, who, who's, who, who is suitable for your level of risk appetite, right? Uh, if, uh, is that startup growing so fast but acquiring customers by just throwing money at customers? And therefore, there is a high degree of uh, high probability that uh, you may lose the job or the startup may shutter and so on, right? The third one, uh, which I think is uh, often um, ignored or at least only touched at the service is, I would say, the compatibility, your compatibility with the founders and at least the senior founding team, uh, personalities, their philosophies, their values, their ways of working. Because in a startup, uh, the leadership, especially the founders, affect almost everything. Affect the environment, affect the way of working, affect the, the, the values and perspectives. And that can mean a big difference uh, for anyone looking at a startup position where the, in terms of their happiness, their purpose, their satisfaction in their jobs. Right? I think that's very, very important. And finally, uh, the fourth thing I would say is what I would like to call as fit for self. Uh, basically, I will ask, I'll encourage anyone to ask themselves, do you think uh, your capabilities and your preferences at your current life stage is actually suitable for the current stage of the startup? So even within startup, there are different stages and some people may be more comfortable or maybe suitable for, di uh, for different stages versus others, right? either very early stage or very late stage. So for me, Always important, these are the four main parameters. If I, again, for myself, when I assess a startup position versus a corporate job, uh, that those are the four. Yeah, I mean, the founders and the senior management at the startup level definitely have a lot more impact. So that makes sense that uh, that's a big reason. Definitely understand the, the idea, the challenge, the purpose of a startup, you know, being a reason why uh, you join because um, you know, that's, that's what will keep you going when things inevitably get tough. Yeah, exactly. So I guess I wanna kind of switch gears a little. We've been talking about 
your role as a scaler and as you know building processes for for a startup and kind of like what that difference between a corporation is but um you know your you wear multiple hats and you know one of the things that you said is talking about growing the business growing that pnl uh and so first can you in general let us know what are the major challenges uh that you know specifically uh Ruanguru is facing as it is uh scaling this business to you know that the next you know three four thousand employees yeah sure I think the first one is the easiest for me to share. And I think it's also quite common uh, in Indonesia, especially uh, being an early, uh, early stage uh, digital ecosystem. Um, that is recruitment and retention of uh, capable and even culture fit talents. Now, uh, I think it goes without saying, uh, if any particular startup uh, start doing well in, the, in their respective sector, uh, you are bound to invite competition, right? And the competition will also face the same challenge of getting the right talents. And Ruang Guru being uh, the leader in attack in Indonesia right now is, of course, the number one source of talent supply for the attack sector. So it is hugely challenging. Uh, as we scale up, we also need more capable and um, more uh, suitable scalers. But at the same time, to keep our engine running, how do we retain uh, people whom we have, you know, developed and trained so hard from from scratch to really have deep domain knowledge, but also the right culture fit? That is a major, major challenge and major headache that are in my job and together with the rest of the management team we face every single day. Uh, because if, if anyone wants to start a, an ad tech startup tomorrow and you need to have someone that can help boost your business, I bet my money they will look at Wang Guru first to see who we can poach. <laughs> That's uh, the first one. So quickly before you get into the other ones, when you're talking about people uh, you know, poaching your talent, right? That's obviously going to happen at every major um, you know, industry leader. Yep. But are, is it... Is it across all job functions or is it, uh, you know, primarily, uh, you know, the engineering talent because they have the ability to, to scale tech products or uh, just in general, if you have worked at Ruanguru, then you kind of have that seal of approval that you have, you have a certain trait and quality to work at any other company. Yeah, that, that's a great point, actually. Uh, you are right. I think uh, if we look at different functions, there is a certain spectrum. Um, on the on the on the on one end of the spectrum, which I would say is uh, more poachable because uh, it's more uh, rare, yeah, rare commodity or rare skill set, will be actually the content development uh, function, uh, the teachers who have blended technology and uh, subject mastery to build that educational content. That's definitely number one. Uh, followed by the product and tech guys for sure because they need to blend the, the understanding of the student user journey yeah, uh, with, the, with the, the technology itself. Um, and, and definitely all, all the generalist uh, operations uh, team, right? Uh, that, that's more, uh, I will say, more coachable 
On the other hand, maybe less so, but still a high degree of portability will be um, like the sales function, uh, customer service uh, function, even marketing function, uh, because I think that's more uh, repeatable across different domain or sectors. Yeah, but, but you're right. I mean, there's the nuanced difference across the functions. Not all are equally uh, uh, challenging in terms of retaining, yeah. And you and you when you're talking about the the content creators, the teachers, right? These are the people who are leading your classes. So you essentially have this a similar problem to what like Peloton has, where Peloton is you know built you know th their retention is based on uh, their their riders connecting with the the uh, instructors on a, a daily weekly basis, uh, and so if they were to lose them. Uh, they could potentially churn out their their customers, right? So is that, you know, similar to what you guys are going through with your your content creators and teachers? Uh, partially, right. Um, initially, that was one one key concern we had early on as we scaled up content team. Especially, we also had learnings from ad techs, much bigger ad techs in China, that there are there is a concept of star uh, celebrity teachers, right? Superstar teachers that everyone uh, looked to. But I think over time, we found ways to mitigate this challenge uh, where we, we build and expose and build the profile of many, many more teachers. But at the same time, we also you know, blend it with our proprietary uh, technology that is not just about the teacher. Uh, if we lose a teacher tomorrow, he or she can join another ad tech company but uh, the entire operation from their side, like you know, how they use the tools, how they are being QC'd, yeah, quality control of the video that they record. The, 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 there's actually an army behind the teachers. It's not just the teachers themselves. In Wanguru, we have hundreds of pre-production and post-production people, right? Those who are continually refining the scripts, building the storyboard, the mood board, and the animators, the editors. So, uh, in a way, you are right. Um, students, they see the teachers first and foremost. But at the same time, you know, if we treat the teachers well, uh, you know, um, build career development plans for them, they are satisfied and they know that only when it's combined with the greatness of the behind the scenes people and the technology, then you can make the magic happen. Right? So, so it's, a, it's a tweak. You are right. You using the Peloton example is, I think, relevant. Uh, but over time, we've uh, tried to tackle that challenge. Yeah, that makes sense because especially when you're K through 12, your teachers constantly changing. Uh, so you were, you know, I interrupted you. You were going through some other ch challenges that you, you've had growing the business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, number two, after retention and recruitment, uh, it's definitely competition, right? Especially because of COVID, uh, ad tech has become a hot sector. Right, because uh, students are forced to study from home, yeah, and therefore um, adoption of digital uh, platforms and tools have definitely exploded. But that also means that suddenly a lot of people with ideas to launch a startup have taken the first step, and even we see that investors are you know looking around more and you know uh, picking their making their bets on the different horses, yeah, and therefore. Uh, it becomes uh, pretty a lot of distraction for us uh, because I think we've been quite lucky before COVID that uh, we don't have much competition. 
so we can focus on really refining our product continuously delivering the new innovation but now with competition of course as a business we have to be concerned right uh, for the different uh, threats as uh, different attacks are directly going to head to head with some of our products in our portfolio and each of them are focused on one while we are doing many right so so that that is a challenge how do we uh, retain our speed and quality of our innovation uh, to always be differentiated and better uh, for the customers but at the same time you know we have to look out and benchmark and uh, be faster uh, always be more right than the uh, our compet competitors and then i think after after competition is also something that uh, comes i think as part of any growing fast growing company i will say with success uh, there will be much more attention from critics from media from the public right and again this on top of the competition can prove to be even more exhausting for the entire organization right uh, you, you're going to get every million customers we scale up further we will get potentially thousands of people that we need to uh, of complaints right about the product about the service about the pricing and about everything that is something that uh, also accepts uh, a lot of our energy one of my biggest frustrations working with really large organizations is the speed at which things happen Bureaucracy slows everything down. There are so many more stakeholders and sometimes it feels like I spend more time presenting to people over the course of weeks and months than doing any kind of work. As someone who is helping shape Ruanguru as they transform into more of a corporate entity, Richie and I discuss how can you stay true to the founders day one mentality as they scale and keep things as nimble as possible. How do we actually retain the magic of the day one mindset right uh, something like um, i admire jeff bezos always say that you know uh, it's always day one right uh, how do we retain that as our organization grow it's, it's not easy uh, we we all want that but how do we make sure it happens it is definitely definitely not easy and it cannot be only dependent only on the founders it has to be the collective effort of more of the team more than the founders yeah, so I think there are two things that I, I'm really interested to mm. follow up on. The first is you, you're talking about competition, right? So there's all these upstarts that are coming after you. And, you know, you, you had mentioned you have three major products that have, you know, sub products beneath it. And these, the, these competitors are only focusing on like one, right? So they're laser focused while you are, um, you know, I don't want to say spreading yourself thin because you have scale, but how do you, how do you prioritize, you know, your growth areas in these, uh, within these different products that you have? Prioritization is uh, something that um, we also continuously tweak the way we prioritize it, even the methodology, right? Of course, the cliche will be to always say, be data driven, right? Look at the data and see which one you can measure a certain higher ROI of your effort. Right, but even data, as much as they are available, um, sometimes it's not easy to interpret, or even the data itself may not be complete, or it may not be accurately uh, captured or uh, analyzed. So uh, I think this is also uh, I'm learning along the way that there's a certain uh, instinct 
by the visionary founders that uh, is blended together with the data. Uh, and sometimes we make call uh, really by the gut uh, when, especially when data is not available, things like that. Now, but the reality uh, that I'm facing right now in Ronguru, um, I'm also always asking this question to the founders and to my fellow management team members. Now, which one are we prioritizing? And so far, the spirit has been, if we had believed in the product that we launched in the first place and we are iterating it as we go, um, the question is, don't start with what to prioritize, but actually start with which one um, can bring um, the biggest impact to the most number of customers first, right? In terms of if we actually launch this feature or launch a sub product, um, do we believe that is something that can reach to and benefit more students or lifelong learners first? If yes, we'll go for it, even though the data may suggest that our ROI may be low or the competition is too much in there or our our product and tech team have not developed that idea as deeply as the other product things that way. So I think our, 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 our North Star, right, is really uh, the number of customers that can benefit from the product first, and then we'll go all out with that. But that being said, typically what happens is that we actually do everything anyway. Uh, so we scale up, as we scale up the company, we don't, uh, in Ronguru, we don't really like to like explicitly deprioritize something, uh, to pause something. Usually it's just slowing down the progress or development of certain projects. You kind of touched on this, right? You were talking about uh, the founders have to help make decisions that combines both instinct and data. Mm. Uh, but we've been talking about how you, you are scaling your building processes within this growing organization. So when you are talking about um, speed and quality of the innovation of, you know, of your products versus these, these competitors uh, and your, your company is growing um, the headcount uh, exponentially, how do you instill a process of decision-making that, um, you know, talking about that day one mentality of the founders, right? How do you, how do you balance that with, and, and getting that speed of the decision without, uh, you know, the, the layers of bureaucracy that larger corporations have when it comes to the decision-making process? Yeah, great, great, great question. I think uh, for me, uh, I realized the right way to go about this is actually to do something what I call a gradual uh, building of decision-making muscle yeah, in the entire organization. Now, um, sometimes a lot of people, uh, especially those with, who have been trained to be very data-driven, evidence-based, right? they can get easily frustrated by people who make decisions by instinct. Yep. And for me to bridge both parties for the benefit of the whole team, you have to understand why those people that rely on gut instinct still prefer to go with gut instinct. Right, uh, and I think it's human to say that if you found your traction as a founder, uh, that so far your what your gut instinct has been telling you has been uh, mostly hits than miss, than misses. Yep. Um, then um, it's very hard to just you know uh, expect them to 
fully shift over to being data driven 100%. Now, if the founders also trust uh, the people they hire, the leaders in the company, that they are also capable of making the right decisions swiftly. And to do that is not easy. Uh, to get trust, you need to see uh, evidence, uh, even traction of right decisions made in a, in, a, in a timely manner, right? And so I see my role is to help bridge this gap. For example, uh, instead of just jumping to say, let's create a system uh, to quickly delegate decision-making or even the execution um, to as many people as possible to free up the the leader's time and to reduce bottleneck. Uh, I start with the lens of saying, uh, what are the critical must-win battles, uh, must-win, must-be-right decisions, uh, and leave it first to the founders. Take the small, uh, small steps, take the small decisions first, and um, really, uh, for me as the management team, uh, as a leader of my division, I actually explicitly demonstrate to my team that there are certain decisions that before I join, they will, everyone will wait for, let's say, the CEO to approve. But I told them I've decided to take this calculated move to approve it anyway without their prior approval because it is actually low risk and we can learn so much from it and so on and so forth with whatever additional rationale. And I do it. And if there will be two outcomes, my decision was right and we get great outcomes or my decision was wrong and we actually you know, screw up and or, or uh, got into some sort of uh, failure or issues, right? But I have to continue to demonstrate the low risk approach first, the decisions made for the lower risk uh, topics, issues that can be done. And actually, uh, when, when, some, when we achieve a decision that's made right, I privately ask the founders to praise whoever the decision maker is for taking the right call without waiting for them. Now, once we start to build this cycle of, uh, okay, everyone uh, start to be more in, uh, smart about making decisions and being fast about it, then you can earn the trust of the founders and then you create a system whereby you actually start delegating and everyone can move faster together. Now, this is a process that takes time. It cannot be done in a workshop, in a one-day meeting or brainstorming or sharing session. It has to be done over many, many weeks, days, months of continual trust building and self-learning. Right? So, so for me, that, that's the key, Jesse. Okay. So, yeah, it's a, it's a process and it, it's, it sounds like there's, uh, you need founder buy-in as well, right? Founders, one of the things that they need to be comfortable with, which I think a lot of struggle is, uh, delegating and trusting the team, right? But it yep. sounds like, um, so it's, you have to fight it from both, both sides, but it sounds like you guys have uh, developed the process that allows them to focus on uh, a lot of the big decisions and allows you and your team to the freedom to uh, execute uh, how you see fit. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and actually, Jesse, the, uh, especially when we talk about scalers, I think that's a big struggle for any scalers joining any startup, right? Uh, it, I, I mentioned earlier, right? There was the primary value to bring the experience, but with experience also comes another challenge. Uh, typically scalers 
will be quite blindsided because you will be you will assume that okay um, some big organization have doesn't have done this process and trust the employees and you know they always say this uh, quite again quite cliche statement right like why do you hire smart people when you uh, don't let them think for themselves right uh, easier said than done right uh, but for me there's a there's a middle ground right the smart people also need time to get used to the essence, to the priorities, to the ways of working in that startup, right? Before their full smartness can be utilized for the organization. So it's, it's a major struggle, even for me when I joined, but luckily I think I've adapted to it and I've seen the fruits of that labor, meaning now more and more, the founders are trusting uh, my, myself and the rest of the management team and also more of the middle level leaders to make certain decisions without waiting for them. And they have recognized that they have become bottlenecks for some uh, less risky decisions. Uh, but it's, it, it only happens uh, you know, after they have seen for themselves that, hey, the people that I hire are mature enough, uh, are prepared enough to have backup things in case things go wrong or things like that. So you know, it's a process for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Finding, finding the right fit. Uh, you know, we've talked about it at the company, at the company stage, your, your life. And then once you get into the company, right, finding the fit, um, it's, it's all a process that takes time. So I think patience, you know, is one of those big things that everyone has to uh, take out of that. So, you know, Richie, thank you so much for, for taking the time and talking to us about, you know, what it takes to uh, scale a company. Uh, can you uh, let everyone know where they can find you and Ruanguru online? <laughs> sure. I mean, you can always find Richie Guinawan at LinkedIn. I'm always happy to help out whenever I can. I think uh, I'm, I'm, I believe in paying it forward as much as I've learned from a lot of mentors and great leaders and also other people that I've listened to in podcasts, founders and non-founders alike. I'm always happy to help as much as I can. But I think, uh, and also thank, thanks, thanks, Jesse, for giving me this opportunity uh, to, to, to really share the learnings. Hopefully it benefits as many people as possible. Yeah, thank you. This was very insightful. Cool. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Side Door Podcast. Let me know on Twitter, at Jesse Bowman, if you like hearing stories from operators. My next episode will be with another VP at a fast-growing startup. Then I'll move on to some investors and back to founders. I'd appreciate if you gave this a five-star rating on your favorite podcast player or tell a friend who might like this episode. Until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.